When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey there, welcome to The Tent Time, your host, Scott Fellman, and it's time for another foray into the world of aquariums from a slightly different perspective. The term benthic is an adjective, and it refers to uh, the things that which occur at the bottom of a body of water, specifically the benthic zone. It's the ecological region at the lowest level of a body of water, like an ocean, a lake, or a stream, and that includes things like the sediment surface and some subsurface layers. The name comes from the ancient Greek, which means the depth. Now, you know where this is going today. <laughs> a few years ago, our friend Mike Tucanardi shared some amazing photos that he took underwater in the Rio Negro, which we featured in a, here in the tent. Not only were the photos simply cool to look at, they gave us a whole bunch of ideas on how to create natural looking and functioning scenes and in uh, uh, of streams. And in my mind, they validated the aesthetic part and the craft of botanical influenced aquariums is more of a realistic interpretation of what you might encounter at the bottom of, you know, lower levels of the water column in habitats such as Amazonia. Yeah, the bottom. Something that we take for granted in most aquascapes. It's sand and a few rocks and that's usually it. The two things that really struck me about the images that Mike sent were the amount of botanical material accumulating on the bottoms of these streams. It's significant and surprisingly diverse. Sure, the dominant materials present are typically things like leaves, but there's a significant quantity of other stuff like seed pods and roots and bark and tree branches, all kinds of stuff. And the interesting thing that I noticed is that the majority of the fishes present in these environments truly seem to interact with them, utilizing the botanical materials as either foraging areas, hiding places, or nurseries. You'd see fry darting in and out of them. Sure, you see fishes like carrison schooling in open water near the surface, but a surprisingly large number of the fishes that were present in these you know, environments seem to associate very closely with the botanical cover, the botanical material itself on the bottom of these bodies of water. Now, there was a pic that he sent me of a cichlid sort of staying very close to the bottom. Uh, and, in the, and in this case, it was a, a little break in the leaf litter that exposed some white sand. Now, cichlids do a lot of foraging at the bottom as well as courtship spawning and other activities. And the botanical materials provide some cover, some territory and meeting spaces. And of course, food sources, mainly insects, worms, and small crustaceans. I noticed a similar behavior in some of my aquarium cichlids, for example, a pistogramma. They'll come out into the water column, but they prefer to not stray very far from where the leaves and the botanical materials are at the bottom of the aquarium. And it's no secret that many apisto breeders use, you know, catapa leaves and stuff like that extensively in their aquariums, ostensibly to help impart beneficial tannin and, you know, humic substances into the water. But from a more functional standpoint, they also provide that same level of comfort, if you will, protection, spawning areas, and foraging like they do in the wild. A perfect example of how configuring an aquarium for your fishes can bring out their natural behaviors. There's something extremely simple about the concept, yet I 
suspect that many of us aquarists approach the design of our aquariums from a purely aesthetic standpoint. Now, there's nothing wrong with that, of course. We've talked about that a lot. But think of how interesting it is to actually consider the lifestyle of the fishes that we keep and how more closely replicating, in this case, the benthic structures, the bottom structures, can foster the natural behaviors that we crave while still creating a really cool aesthetic. It'll help us reconsider the materials which we use at the bottom of our aquariums. Indeed, it'll inspire us to rethink about how we view the substrate layers of our tanks altogether. Now, for many of us, the literal foundation of our aquariums has been and still is sand or gravel or whatever kind of substrate material you're using. It's been that way for most of the century of the modern aquarium keeping era. Now, sure, there's been some variations in grades, uh, you know, some sand types and some origins and colors and stuff. But basically, it's the same stuff we've had forever. Now, recently, there's more products coming on the market geared towards growing plants and some decorative, you know, sands and gravels that are coming out, which is all cool. And sands and gravels are a good simulation of the materials found in many natural habitats. However, I think we have to accept that many aquatic habitats aren't simply sand and gravel, our sort of idealized, sanitized version of what the bottom should be. When you consider natural waters and the impact of substrate, the story gets even more interesting. In rivers like the Amazon, the Jingo, or the Orinoco, you'll find materials that originate in the mountains and the highlands and gradually work their way downstream, influencing the aquatic environment chemically, physically, and yes, ge geographically, I suppose would be the right word. These materials are influenced by the currents and the water movement. They tend to sort themselves out and reorganize over time. To simulate this dynamic, it pays to do a little research on the specific environment that you're looking to replicate. Some parts of the Amazon, for example, are replete with larger particles of material, even rock with a covering of fine sand. Studies have shown that particle sizes tend to decrease the further downstream from the source they are found. Makes sense, right? Large rivers like the Amazon have beds of shifting sand slowly transported with currents. Typically, the larger the item, the pebble or rock or boulder, whatever it is, the longer it tends to stay in one place. So in a more powerful flow, you'll likely, you know, see larger sized particles than you would in a mellow area. History lesson. Yeah, where else in the aquarium world will you get a mini history lesson on substrates, right? History lesson here. The first recorded observations of bed material of the Amazon River were made in 1843 by a Lieutenant William Lewis Herndon of the U.S. Navy when he traveled the river from its headwaters to its mouth, and he was sounding its depths and noting the, you know, the nature of the particles caught in heavy grease that was smeared at the bottom of his sounding weight. And he reported the bed material uh, of, you know, the river to be mostly sand and fine gravel. Uh, two scientists named Ottman and Hayes took samples at a few locations in 1963 and 1964 and reported the bed material in many parts of Brazil to be fine sands with median diameters ranging from about 0.15 to 0.25 millimeters. There you go. Okay, not some breakthrough knowledge there, I know, but the point is in many of the larger rivers and their tributaries that we, you know, obsess over, they have mixed sizes of sands and gravels at the bottom. It's not just one uniform size. There's a lot to the science of naturally graded materials, and you'll have to do some research on the subject. In the end, the science can tell you a lot. However, creativity and your aesthetic taste are typically the guidelines that you'll embrace to assemble your little slice of the bottom or slice of the benthos, as they would say in our parlance here. With an abundance of commercially available substrate materials on the market, it's easier than ever to replicate cool little segments of these environments. Take a sort of holistic approach to constructing the substrate in your aquarium. Look into the practical and aesthetic aspects of your materials and how you'd combine the permanent materials, you know, gravel, sands, and pebbles and stuff, with the more transient materials, botanicals, and leaves. 
it's a lot of fun. It's very engaging and it can almost create a little hobby within a hobby. I mean, it did for me. And yeah, the transient material part, of course, is very fascinating to me. In many of the slower moving waters where the sediment sorting has already occurred, you'll find an accumulation of softer, more ephemeral materials like leaves, twigs, seed pods, soil, sediments, etc. over a bed of sand. Sometimes these can be quite deep, like a meter or more. In areas like the Pantanal, as related by our friend Ty Streitman, the decomposing materials, often terrestrial plant parts and stuff, can be extremely deep. What goes on in these deep beds of decomposing botanical materials? A whole lot, I think. It's something that I keep coming back to because the idea of utilizing botanicals in your aquarium substrate keeps tantalizing me with its performance and its potential benefits. If we focus on shallow tributaries of streams and flooded forest floors, which are one of my personal favorite areas of interest, it's important to note that the volume of water entering the stream helps in part determine the amount and size of the sediment particles, the leaves, the branches, the seed pods, and all that stuff that can be carried along and thus comprising the you know bottom substrate and its contours. So that actually influences the literal structure of the bottom. The mixing of materials not only looks interesting, but it's a reflection of the diversity and the vibrancy of the underwater environment. One of the things that you notice in a lot of these pictures that you'll see of the underwater natural substrates is that they're anything but squeaky clean, you know, white super sand. Rather, they're often sediment filled, covered with stringy fungal growths, biofilm, and even some algae once in a while. There's a fair amount of detritus accumulating in the substrate materials. And as you know, detritus is not the enemy that we've made it out to be. We've beat the crap out of that one for years, right? It's a source of food for many aquatic animals, helping to literally power the ecosystem in which it's present. This is something that we can and should absolutely replicate in our aquariums. I really believe that. Don't be afraid of sediments and even detritus accumulating on top of your leaves and botanicals. It's exactly what you see in nature. And our fishes are ecologically adapted to these types of habitats. In nature, the composition of bottom materials and the depth of the channel are always changing in response to a flow in a given stream, affecting the composition and the ecology in all sorts of ways. Some of these changes are actually the result of the fishes sort of working them. And I'm going to quote you from, again, from our friend Mike Tucanardi uh, in an article he wrote for us a few years back. He said, one of the things that's most striking when you spend time below the water's surface in this sort of environment is that the fish aren't just passive inhabitants. They're actively involved with their habitat, interacting in a very particular way. Epistogramma species aren't just hanging out. They're fighting turf wars among piles of dense leaf litter, even making their own piles by moving leaves and other bits of detritus to the center of their territories. Suckermouth catfish, whether farluella or incestuous, are actively exploring recently submerged branches and roots, looking for a rich patch of biofilm or algae to feast on. Earth eaters and many other species of cichlids, even severums, angelfish, and discus, are patrolling the bottom, taking big mouthfuls of sand and organic material to sift out any tasty morsels. It's a big organic mess, literally made up of various botanicals, and these fishes are having a field day in it. So these dynamic habitats are really not difficult to replicate in the aquarium. We've been doing this for years, right? In fact, many of you are starting to play along now too, and it's kind of cool. Um, we need to understand that substrate plays a huge functional and aesthetic role in our overall aquarium environment, and we've touched on that a lot over the years here, haven't we? I've seen a lot of new products entering the market and they're talking about how they can replicate the look of something. That's great, but we can do better and we have done better. We need to replicate the function as well. And I'm glad that that's what we've been talking about for so long here and we'll continue to talk about. It's not just aesthetics. The aesthetics are a byproduct of that function. 
realizing that placing leaves and botanical materials on the bottom of an aquarium is not just making an aesthetic statement either. Rather, it's an homage to the function of the dynamic habitats that we love so much. Feeding dynamics play a huge role in the interactions which fishes have with the bottom. As we've talked about previously, aquatic invertebrates and crustaceans are one of the primary foods consumed by many fishes which reside in tropical streams, and the amounts and types are dictated by the environment of the stream, which includes factors like the surrounding topography, current elevation, surrounding plant growth, and a lot of other factors. Many fishes like headstanders, caracins, and others simply consume the crustaceans as part of their sediment feeding activity. Now that we're more likely to set up an aquarium with fine silty sediments stocked with lots of copepods and worms and stuff, these experiments may yield very interesting and productive results. It's absolutely possible to create a real active substrate filled with these creatures and to be able to pre-stock it with cultures of small life forms prior to the introduction of the fish. And of course, there's always ways to replenish the population of these creatures and even the substrate itself periodically, resulting in extremely productive long-term systems too. An interesting experiment to think about, huh? Even more interesting to actually execute. Could such a system with heavy substrate-centric focus be successfully managed long-term? Absolutely. I've done it. You've done it too. A well-managed substrate in which uneaten food and fish feces are not allowed to accumulate to excess and which regular organic nutrients, regular nutrient export processes are embraced, it's not an issue. When other good practices of aquarium husbandry, you know, not overcrowding or overfeeding are employed, a botanically enriched substrate can enhance, not inhibit, the nutrient processing within your aquarium and maintain water quality for extended periods of time. You're likely aware of the fact that we're crazy about small, shallow bodies of water, right? I mean, almost every fish geek is like genetically programmed to find virtually any random body of water irresistible, especially little rivulets and pools and creeks and forest streams the kinds which have an accumulation of leaves and botanical materials on the bottom. You know, darker waters, submerged branches, all that stuff. You know, the kind where you're going to find fishes. Happily, such habitats exist everywhere, all over the world, leaving us no shortage of places to attempt to replicate, like pretty much everywhere you look. In Africa, for example, many of these little streams and pools are homes to some of my favorite little fishes, killifish. A particular interest to me are fishes of the genus Epiplates. They're top-dwelling fishes that are really good at hiding and quite adept at it in these little bodies of water with their tangles of roots and submerged vegetation. That's what they do. As I just mentioned, many of these little jungle streams are really shallow, cutting gently through accumulations of leaves and forest debris. Many are seasonal. The great Killy documenter uh, and collector, Colonel Jorgen Scheel, precisely described the water conditions found in their habitat as rather hot, shallow, usually stagnant, and probably soft and acid. Not probably, if they were. Aha, we knew this pretty well, right? We did. I think we do. And understanding of this type of habitat has a lot of implications for creating very cool biotope-inspired aquariums. And why not make them for killifish, for that matter? So, for the most part, these fishes are often found in very shallow jungle streams. Well, how shallow? Well, reports I've seen have stated they're found in in the shallow as two inches, which is like five centimeters. That's really freaking shallow, like seriously shallow. And quite frankly, I'd call that more of a rivulet than a stream. Virtually still with a very perceptible current was one description. That makes my case, like what you'd see in a small stream overflows its banks and creates a smaller body of water. What does that mean for those of us who keep smaller aquariums? Well, it gives us some inspiration, right? Some ideas for aquariums that attempt to replicate and study these very compelling shallow environments. An important consideration when contemplating such a replication in our tanks is to consider just how these little, you know, forest streams form. Typically, they're either a small tributary of a larger stream 
with the path carved out by rain or erosion over time. In other situations, they may simply be the result of an overflowing tributary during the rainy season, and as the waters recede later in the year, they evolve into smaller streams meandering through vegetation. Those little streams fascinate me. These interesting little tributaries are usually shaded by trees at the margins and often cut for many, many kilometers through dense rainforest. The bottoms of these tributaries, typically former forest floors, which we're very familiar with, right, are often covered with seed pods, twigs, leaves, and other botanical materials from the vegetation above and the surrounding area. Often the material will pool into even smaller bodies of water. So in this world of decomposing leaves, submerged logs, twigs, and seed pods, there's a surprising diversity of life forms, which call this milieu home. And each one of these organisms has managed to eke out an existence and even thrive there. So-called ephemeral streams typically occur only immediately after rain events, which means they usually don't have fish in them unless they're washed into them from more permanent water courses. Uh, these ephemeral streams are really interesting. Now, I don't expect you to set up a tank with a water level that's two inches deep. And although it would be pretty cool to do that, for most of us, perhaps three and a half to four inches, which is what, like about nine to 10 centimeters of depth, is probably something we could do. Yeah, totally doable. There's some pretty small commercial aquariums that aren't much deeper than, you know, six or eight inches, so like 20 centimeters or so, and you could adapt other containers for this purpose, right? That's what we do. We could do this with some very interesting South American or Asian habitats too. Shallow tanks, deep leaf litter beds, and even some botanicals for good measure. Replicating these unique habitats creates functionally amazing aquariums too. These little bodies of water are very productive. Now, again, this is an area that is wide open for replication. We'll talk about it more over the years and more over the months, but I'm excited to share some of these ideas with you today. I hope that I've at least piqued some of your interest in this stuff and maybe we can continue and maybe we'll even do a part two of this one because it's just so darn interesting to me. In fact, this will be part one. We'll do a part two maybe tomorrow. Where I'll talk about some other ideas. So I hope you've enjoyed this and I hope that you give it a shot looking at the wave streams and environments form, not just how they look. It's pretty cool. Stay creative, stay inspired, stay fascinated, stay engaged, and always stay wet. Until next time, this is Scott Fellman from Tannin Aquatics. Thanks for spending part of your day with me, and I look forward to spending a little more time with you on the next installment of The Tint.